They are elected by you. I am elected by you. I'm constrained as they are constrained by a system that our founders put in place. The founders separated power because they knew it was the best way to protect our citizens. They didn't want one person, one man to have all the power like a king. We show by our work that free people can govern themselves. You can't pay lip service to the Constitution without obeying it. Keep your eye on the ball. Structure is, uh, structure is destiny. This is Necessary and Proper, the podcast of the Federal Society's Article One Initiative. All views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Federal Society. Hello and welcome to Necessary and Proper. This is Nate Kazmarek with the Article One Initiative. On today's episode, we break from our usual format to include a great Federal Society Teleform conference call discussing Congress and its role in addressing the modern regulatory landscape. Just days after our National Lawyers Convention at the Mayflower Hotel in Washington, D.C., this informative call continued some of the important discussion held at the convention. The initiative co-sponsored this teleform with the Federal Society's Administrative Law Practice Group. It was titled, Congress Can Fix the Regulatory Mess It Created. In addition to our expert guests, we had live questions from Federal Society members. The experts for this call were Professor Susan Dudley, who is the director at George Washington University Regulatory Studies Center, and return guest, Professor David Schoenbrod, who is a trustee professor of law at New York Law School. The call covered a lot of interesting ground, including the history behind the modern administrative state and proposed reform statutes and bills, such as the Congressional Responsibility Act, the Congressional Review Act, and the RAINS Act. It also discussed a reform proposal Dudley and Schoenbrod recently called for in the Hill, named the Responsibility for Regulation Act. As always, if you have feedback, please send it to article i at fedsoc.org. And if you would like to learn more about the initiative and its upcoming events, please visit fedsoc.org slash article i. That's F-E-D-S-O-C dot O-R-G slash article i. We hope you enjoy this discussion. Welcome to the Federal Society's Teleform Conference Call. This afternoon's discussion is being sponsored by the Administrative Law and Regulation Practice Group as well as the Article One Initiative. Our topic is, Congress can fix the regulatory mess it created. My name is Nate Kazmarek. I'm the Deputy Director of the Article One Initiative at the Federal Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the experts on today's call. And today we are happy to have with us Professor Susan Dudley, who is the Director at George Washington University Regulatory Studies Center and also Professor David Schoenbrod, who is a trustee professor of law at New York Law School. I will turn it over to Professor Dudley to get us started. After opening remarks, we will go right to Q&A. So audience members, uh, please think of what you'd like to ask our speakers. Thank you both for speaking with us. Susan, the floor is yours. Thank you, Nate. All I'm actually going to do is to introduce Professor David Schoenbrod, who is really going to be talking to us today. Um, and I'm going to start just by reading the first paragraph from his New York Law School bio. Um, quote, a pioneer in the field of environmental law, David Schoenbrod was at the forefront of environmental justice taking on big business. Now his concern has turned to Congress evading accountability to voters. So I'll let you read the rest of um, of his bio about his distinguished career, but I'll give you just a few highlights before I turn the floor over to him. 
Um, as Nate mentioned, he's a trustee professor of law at New York Law School. He's also co-leader of the Breaking the Log Jam project, um, focusing on environmental law for the 21st century. He does that with NYU professors Katrina Wyman and Richard Stewart, Stewart who is a former chairman of the Environmental Defense Fund. Um, in the 1970s, David was a staff attorney for the Natural Resources Defense Council, um, as his that first line that I read to you um, mentioned. Um, and his most recent book, D.C. Confidential, Inside the Five Tricks of Washington, shows how politicians from both parties use tricks to take credit for popular promises but avoid blame for unpopular consequences. And he points the way to stopping the trickery. And I think we'll hear a little bit more about that today. So, David, with that, um, I'll turn it over to you. Right. Well, thank you very much, Susan and Nate. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be spending part of the afternoon with you and talking to our audience. Um, so let me say a little bit about my take on this subject, and I'd be happy to take questions. Congress spawned the regulatory mess when it began to legislate on regulation in a new way around 1970. Congress began to command agencies to achieve popular regulatory goals, such as to protect health by a deadline, but left unspecified the duties that agencies would have to impose to achieve those goals. By issuing such commands and making them judicially enforceable, the legislators got the credit for embracing popular goals, but left the agencies with the blame for the burdens needed to achieve them. So issuing such commands became a political profit center for legislators, and the consequence is they issued a lot of commands. If you search for the words shall aligned with the word administrator in the Cleaner Act, you will see that Congress issued 940 commands to the EPA administrator in that statute alone. Now, that produces complicated regulation. As a result, Obama's EPA administrator, G. Dunk McCarthy, of all people, said, quote, I hate that each sector has 17 to 20 rules that govern each piece of equipment, and you've got to be a neuroscientist to figure it out. Now, you can contrast the new way with, with, with which Congress approaches regulation with the old. I mean, the old idea, of course, was that lawmakers are supposed to make the law, um, and, um, and and Congress in the, in the 1800s did that to the extent it could, uh, or else it simply authorized an agency to take on a problem. But neither of these two prior approaches incentivized Congress to issue lots and lots of commands to agencies, to issue more and more regulations. So what we have is a situation of skewed responsibility. Congress is responsible for the good results of its commands, or supposed good results of its commands, but not responsible for the bad consequences. Well, there's a way to fix this. And uh, surprisingly, it comes from James Landis, who was a leader uh, on administrative law in the New Deal and the later dean of Harvard Law School. And in 1938, he published a book called The Administrative Process. And in that book, he said that Congress should vote to approve or disapprove major regulatory decisions. And he said that that would make the agency, quote, the technical agent in the initiation of rules of conduct yet at the same time make elected lawmakers share in the responsibility for their adoption, end quote. 
1984, after the Chada decision, uh, Stephen Breyer, then a, a circuit court judge, showed how the Landis approach could in fact work despite filibusters, that rules, rule changes could be imposed on the House and Senate that would force votes up or down quickly without filibuster. And he argued that the upshot would be constitutional. Now, the Landis approach would remove the incentive for legislators to pile commands upon commands on agencies to regulate because they'd get the blame for the consequences. They And so um, it would make sense for them to try to um, pass statutes that gave as much bang for the buck to the public and to reconsider statutes when they get obsolete, which they don't do now. Um, as a result of all this, when in the 1990s, I was asked by some members of Congress to propose a solution to the problem of delegation. I suggested the Landis approach as, as amplified by Breyer, and the upshot was the introduction of a bill called the Congressional Responsibility Act. And it got a lot of support uh, from both parties, and it began to get legs. And that scared the leadership because uh, they were afraid that their members would actually have to be responsible for regulations. So they, played, they, they, they pulled a switcheroo. They got rid of the Congressional Responsibility Act and put in its place something called the Congressional Review Act, which did get passed. Whereas the Congressional Responsibility Act required the legislators to take responsibility, the Congressional Review Act gives them the option to be responsible. And guess what? They hardly ever want that uh, to take up that option. And the, ex the exception that proves the rule is what's happened in the last few months. So um, with uh, the, the lack of responsibility in Congress continuing on, some members of Congress pr proposed something called RAINS, Regulations from the Executive in Need of Scrutiny, which is in some ways modeled on the Congressional Responsibility Act. In fact, people who wrote it told me it was modeled on it. But there are two problems with it. First of all, the name of the statute, Regulations from the Executive in Need of Scrutiny, blames the agencies for a problem that Congress created. And the second problem with it is while the Landis proposal seeks to make Congress responsible, RAINS contains additional provisions designed to stop agencies from regulating. So RAINS converted a proposal that was pro-responsibility into a proposal which was anti-regulatory, which means it won't get the Democratic support needed to stop a filibuster in the Senate, which means it won't pass. So the Republicans which passed reins in the House, support a bill that won't pass. Meanwhile, Democrats failed to offer an alternative bill faithful to the Landis proposal. So that's convenient for both parties. Republicans don't have to vote on regulations whose regulatory benefits their constituents want. I'll give you an example. A recent Rasmussen poll showed that a very solid majority of voters favor the goals of the Clean Power Plan. You don't see... President Trump calling on uh, Congress to vote about getting rid of the clean power plan. He's going to do it unilaterally. So members of Congress don't have to be responsible. Um, and and um, Republicans uh, can be against 
regulations killing jobs, um, and um, Democrats can be against pollution killing children, but neither of them have to take responsibility for the consequences of their positions. Um, okay, so I think this, the way to the, the problem the, this is the bottom line. The problem came from Congress. It came from Congress commanding results without taking responsibility for the consequences. And the solution is the Landis proposal to make Congress not not only responsible for issuing commands, but responsible for the major regulations that result from the commands. End of story. Yeah, thank you, David. That was a great summary. Um, And I should have mentioned that David and I actually have an op-ed in The Hill. Was it just last month, David? Yes. That um, provides more detail, and David's website has more detail on his proposal. Um, So, Nate, I think we could open it up to questions now, and while we wait for people to call in, I I might start with a few questions of David. Sounds great. Uh, Let's do that. We will answer questions in the order in which they are received. Okay, thanks, Nate. Um, So while we wait for people to call in, David, at the beginning of your remarks, you said Congress spawned this regulatory mess in the 1970s. What what happened in the in in 1970 that changed how Congress approached regulation, changed its incentives? Okay, that's um, thank you for asking that. Um, well, you know, after the Constitution was adopted, uh, the idea was that the laws, the regulations, that is, the laws, would be made by the lawmakers we elect, and to the extent it reasonably could, Congress did make the laws, did make the regulatory laws. Uh, for the first century or so of our Constitution. Now, that began to change, but unwittingly so, uh, with the beginning of the Progressive Era at the end of the 1800s. What what went on with this is there was a new idea about how how regulation works. The idea was that what you ought to do is set up commissions, bipartisan commissions, uh, staffed by experts who would make decisions on the basis of science or so it was thought, and that they'd be politically insulated. And the proponents of this new way of regulating um, believed in separation of powers, but they thought the agencies were implementing a law, not making the law, because they thought the decisions would be based on science. Well, eventually, the progressive vision was shown to be false. Uh, and there are many reasons why that's so. Uh, one is that science does not answer, answer many questions. The other is that politicians did interfere with how the, the agencies worked. And that became increasingly clear, especially during the 1960s when people like Ralph Nader were showing uh, how politicians did interfere with how agencies work. And that, that, the public, and that made the public angry, and that anger boiled over uh, at the first Earth Day in 1970. People were angry that Congress kept passing statutes that basically said to an agency, here's the problem of air pollution, do something about it, but not much was being done. So the political incentive on, was on Congress to show that they were going to really do something important about air pollution. But at the same time, politicians understandably did not want to take the hit, the blame, for the burdens needed to clean up the air. 
So they thought they came up with a clever way of doing it. And, and what the, this is the Clean Air Act again. They said the EPA shall protect health with an adequate margin of safety by a deadline. And the statute says deadlines. Okay. Um, now, um, the question is, is, why was this credible to voters? And it was credible with voters. Um, well, notice the statute doesn't say make the air healthier. It says it makes the air, the air healthy with an adequate margin of safety. So they were seemingly promising something definite, right? If it just said make the air healthier, well, then people would know that's just a big fudge. How healthy is healthy enough, right? So they pretended they were being really definite about it. And then, of course, there's the question, then, how could they, they really seem to think they could make the air healthy, uh, altogether healthy? Well, this was an era of fantastic belief in science. I mean, after all, we just put a man on the moon. And if we could put a man on the moon, we ought to be able to make the air healthy on Earth. That was what they told us. And we believed it. I was I remember I believed it. Um, so that was part of why it was a credible promise. And then the other thing about it was they put they did something new for a regulatory statute. They put in judicial enforcement. They invented the citizen supervision. Mm -hmm. Nobody had thought about that until really earlier and just a few years earlier with the Civil Rights Act where there was citizen enforcement of the Civil Rights Acts. And then beyond that, it wasn't until around 1970 that we really had the technology to have a nationally administered regulatory effort. I mean, think about it. In the 19, 1960, if you wanted to make a copy of something, you basically either had to print it on a printing press or on a mimeograph machine or use a piece of carbon paper. Well, in the 60s, we ended up having Xerox, you know, the Xerox machine. So, and then eventually we had the computer and all that. So it became thinkable to set these national goals to command the agencies to reach them and to expect that we could make them do it. So, and so Congress did get credit for that promise. And indeed, just about everybody in Congress, Democrats and Republicans, voted for the statute. Why not? All yeah, good, no hard. bad. It's hard okay. not to support clean air and protecting public health with an adequate yeah, market pie, of safety. Yeah. Who could, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it turned out, of course, the promise was hooey that to achieve the healthy air standard would have, for example, required taking two-thirds of the cars off the road in Southern California. That wasn't going to happen. So what the politicians started to do was to lobby EPA not to do it. And EPA didn't do it. And this was liberal Democrats as well as conservative Republicans were lobbying EPA not to do it. Because after all, if EPA doesn't deliver, who gets the blame? EPA. Mm -hmm. So they get the credit for being for clean air, the blame for the burdens, the blame for failures for dirty clean air. That falls on the agency. It's political heaven. So that's how – and once it began, once – it's like a halfback running, you know, on a play where they see an open field in front of them. They just go like the Dickens. So mm -hmm. once they got into this mode of legislating, they ran away with it. And that's yeah. why we have these huge, long statutes with so many mandates in them. So many mandates that aren't really, that still leave a lot of discretion to the agency. Well, absolutely. Well, there's always wiggle room. I mean, it turns out, I mean, they say protect health. Well, it turns out they knew at the time that there was no level of pollution in the air. 
that was healthy. And it was it's impossible to achieve a level of zero. But so what the statute basically does is it requires the agency to lie and say that uh, we've set the standard on the basis of health, whereas they really set it on the basis of political feasibility. But that's Congress is not to blame. For, and then, in fact, some legislators then blaming blame the EPA for not setting the standard strict enough. Mm-hmm. Or setting it too strict. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You've been Nate, there, we, Susan. You know. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> um, I actually did a teleform on that particular um, section of the Clean Air Act and its implementation. Nate, do we have any callers on the line? Yes, we have two callers currently uh, waiting. Would you like to go to the first one? Yes. Let's go to our first question. Uh, good afternoon. Thank you both. Uh, this is Jack Park. I, my question relates to uh, downstream judicial review. Uh, after Congress re- reviews a reg, what does that do to Chevron 1 and take something like the WOTUS rule that some believed was a, you know, went well beyond the federal government's powers over uh, the waters? Various versions of the propose, of the Landis proposal deal with judicial review differently. The RAINS Act says that the regulation is still open to judicial review for all the uh, – under all the requirements of uh, judicial review, including arbitrary and capricious and whether it was within the power of Congress, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The, and, and some people have made the argument that if Congress – approves the regulation, it ought to be deemed um, beyond judicial review. There is an issue with that, though, because um, let's say the agency issues a regulation that is clearly beyond the agency's power. Well, if Congress then approves it, then it would seem that the agency's powers have been expanded and and the problem with that then is that an agency could then basically um, set the the agenda in Congress by issuing a regulation. It would force Congress to vote on something it isn't necessarily ready to vote on. So I think a reasonable middle ground might be something along these lines: that the the Congress is passing or approving the regulation should be deemed to get the regulation beyond um, beyond arbitrary and capricious review, but it could still be reviewed for whether the regulation was within the statutory authority of the agency. I think that would be a reasonable compromise. Does that answer your question, sir? Yeah, that, yeah thank you, David. Yes, this is uh, Roman Bueller with the uh, Madison Coalition. And uh, for background, uh, we are uh, the organization that's promoting a constitutional version of the RAINS Act, which would uh, require a vote of majority vote of the House and the Senate to approve uh, any regulation that was objected to by at least a quarter of the members of the House or the Senate, the idea being that a majority of the minority party ought to be able to demand a vote. So in reading your, your piece in the Hill, uh, I wondered if you could elaborate just a little bit more on the differences between the Congressional Responsibility Act uh, and the RAINS Act. And one thing I wasn't clear on was, was does the Congressional uh, Responsibility Act require a vote of Congress, up or down? Or is it 
similar to the RAINS Act in that Congress retains the option to call a vote um, but is not required to call a vote. And just like a bill doesn't go into effect unless the House you know, brings it to the floor and it passes and the same goes in the Senate and the President signs it. In other words, does it require a vote of the House and the Senate or does it leave the option uh, to the House and the Senate uh, to either take a vote or not to take a vote? Okay, these are good questions, um, and it gives me an opportunity to clarify a few points here. There's, in fact, I think, trying to count them up now, four different statutes or possible statutes we're talking about. The first statute uh, was the Congressional Responsibility Act, which did not pass. Um, the second was the Congressional Review Act that did pass. The Congressional Review Act is the one that gives Congress the option to vote or not, and that's what's on the books now. The RAINS Act uh, is the bill that's pending um, now that was passed by the House in January. And what Susan and I were talking about in our op-ed is something a little different called the Responsibility for Regulation Act, which is a little different than the Congressional Responsibility Act that was introduced in the 90s. I mean, I could run through that again for you if you'd like, but there's four different there are four different possibilities, one of which is on the books, and the only one which is on the books is the Congressional Review Act. Um, now, so, so basically, the, 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 the kind of thing that Susan and I are proposing, which is basically the Landis proposal, it would not give Congress the option to vote. It would require Congress to vote on all major regs. Now, what you're talking about here, uh, your alternative, which I guess is a fifth option, would be that Congress would have to vote if a quarter of a more or more of Congress um, um, objected to the regulation. I'm a little concerned about that because uh, it seems to me there'll be plenty of circumstances where um, more than three quarters of, of Congress would just as soon not be responsible. I mean, it doesn't take that many people to force a vote under the Congressional Review Act, but there have been very few votes. I think I think maybe the difference in concepts, tell me if I've got this right, is that in your case, the president could essentially force Congress to vote against its will. The president could say, here's a regulation, and Congress would be required to bring that to the floor, whereas under the Reins proposal or under the uh, proposal, the, the constitutional version that we talk about, we don't change the rules in the House and the Senate on how you bring a measure to the floor. Is that a fair description of the difference, the procedural difference between the measures? Okay. The RAINS Act is like what Susan and I are talking about in our Responsibility for Regulation Act insofar as it would require votes in the House and Senate. Therefore, an agency promulgating a rule would, promulgating a major rule, would force a vote. The difference between what uh, the Reins Act has the Reins Act bill has in it and the Responsibility for Regulation Act is that there are a lot of poison pills in the House version of the Reins Act, which are designed whatever the intention behind them the, uh, their effect is to make sure it'll never pass. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, I'll give you an example of, of some of the I mean, first of all, the name is off-putting in the first place, unnecessarily off-putting. But here's an example. There's a provision in the House bill that says that any existing regulation will go off the books if within 10 years Congress does not enact it. 
And by the way, any member could force an individual vote on any existing regulation, and any member could force a vote on any particular way in which any existing regulation is um, um, going to, you know, is going to work. Which basically means that just a few members of Congress could make sure there's never time enough to get the work done. Which basically means that Reins, if is enacted as as passed as it passed the House, would knock a whole lot of this congressional uh, the code of federal regulations off the books. Now I don't know. Maybe we'd be secretly cheering about that, but that's a heck of a way to run a government, and it it just ain't going to pass uh, with that kind of stuff in it. I mean, they were to give you a sense of just how wacko the the House has been. There was an earlier version. Uh, of reins that I think did pass the, the House uh, a couple of Congresses ago that said that any Obamacare regulation, no matter how trivial, would have to be enacted, which would mean Obamacare could never work. Now, you may think, you know, that may well be a good thing, but the point about it is is it was it was a poison pill. It, it ensured that reins would never pass. So here we have a situation where... Um, the sponsors of RAINS could say they're for responsibility, but be sure they'll never have to be responsible. David, let me ask a question that might be clarifying. If under the Regulatory Responsibility Act, if the, if Congress doesn't vote, what's the default with the regulation? Under, under RAINS, I guess no vote means the rule would not go into effect. Well, I, I think that, let me explain, there is... All these bills have a default provision. I mean, all of these bills, not all these bills, RAINS and the Responsibility for Regulation Act say there has to be a vote within like 70 days, something like that. But there has to be, and there are changes, and, and the bills also change the House and Senate procedures with a view to force a vote within that time period. And I believe those procedural changes will in fact have that in fact they were designed to have that effect but you still have to have a provision in there that says what will happen if a vote for some, for some reason doesn't take place what will happen to the regulation and what rain says if a vote doesn't take place the regulation does not go into effect of course under current law if a vote doesn't take place the regulation does go into effect right so, um, but the, the, by changing the default to one where the regulation doesn't go into effect, that's really like saying um, to the people who are doubtful about reins, well, uh, saying we're, we're going to find a way of, of getting you in the end. We're going to be able to avoid responsibility and the regulations won't go into effect. Well, I would change the default in the Responsibility for Regula uh, Regulatory Responsibility Act so that if there's not a vote, then the regulation will go into effect, which is the current default. So in other words, if we're passing a statute with the promise we're going to have votes, then the default ought to be if there's no vote, then the regulation goes into effect. Ramon, has that answered your questions? Yes, it does, but as someone who is a counsel, to the House of Representatives for 14 years, it raises another question. You've, you've, I think, correctly identified the fact that that Congress passed RAINS 
uh, knowing it could never be enacted and probably also suspecting that it might not have constitutional problems. But the suggestion you're suggesting, which is that a law uh, get rid, basically take away the Senate and the House's prerogative of what comes to the floor, uh, what I have heard is that there is no way that the leadership um, is going to give the president the ability to, to force the House uh, and the Senate to take a vote. That would be a massive shift of power from the legislative branch to the executive branch. And it would seem to me that you're falling into the same trap that you accuse the, Re the Reins Act folks, which is to propose something that will, uh, will, never, will never get the House and Senate support. Perhaps, I'd be interested in your thought, if you think about how Newt Gingrich was able to uh, persuade Clinton to sign welfare reform, something that the base of the Democratic Party clearly didn't want, he did it by creating a massive groundswell of public opinion around the idea that people should work, uh, be required to work to get welfare. And that simple idea was enough in the end to force Clinton to sign welfare reform. If in the current situation where we all agree the administrative state is out of control, if you create a massive groundswell uh, around the country of voters, and not only of voters, but of state legislators in two-thirds of the states, you create the kind of environment which forced Congress to propose the Bill of Rights and more recently presidential term limits. And that might force Congress into some kind of regulatory reform action we can't predict exactly what Congress would do, and it might, it might break the deadlock. And uh, in fact, our amendment now has the support of 33, I'm sorry, 26 state legislative chambers around the country and was unanimously endorsed by the Republican National Committee with the blessing of the White House two months ago. So I'd be interested in your thoughts about whether you think that kind of mobilization from the grassroots might actually force Congress to act if we don't make them do something that is fundamentally opposed by the leadership of both houses. Well, I wish you well with your groundswell. I mean, I, I have my doubts as to whether you could mobilize it far enough such that um, you could really get a constitutional amendment through. I mean, um, you know, there's been a fair amount of support for things like a balanced budget amendment and so on, uh, but that hasn't really been enough to get effective, regu you know, um, legislation on deficits through. Um, but I, I'm unclear with, um, on your proposed amendment, what would trigger a vote? It would be uh, objections by a quarter of, of one house or the other? Is that what would cause a vote? Right. The amendment says that if one quarter of the House or the Senate um, transmit to the President a written declaration of opposition to a proposed regulation, uh, it requires a majority vote of the House and the Senate uh, to bring that regulation into effect, so right. that the trigger is a is a statement by a quarter. Yeah. Okay. I, I, to repeat myself, uh, but I think it's worth repeating. I have real doubts as to, you know, given the history under Reigns, whether uh, um, we could depend upon a quarter of a house, a quarter of of either ho house, to speak up when something really needs a. Um, a vote in Congress. On the other hand, it seems to me the kind of effort you're undertaking to try to get a constitutional amendment is great. Maybe that's the kind of thing that might uh, induce Congress to pass something like the Responsibility for Regulation Act, the Regulatory mm -hmm. Responsibility Act. So I, I'm cheering you on. I'm all for it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. 
Um, Nate, it sounds like we don't have other callers. If not, I have a couple quick questions. No one currently in the queue. Okay, go ahead, Susan. Okay. Um, so, David, your former um, group, NRDC, has raised concerns about RAINS Act that I think would apply equally to the Regulatory Responsibility Act. They say that it would, in effect, and I'm quoting, impose a slow-motion government shutdown and would replace a process based on expertise, rationality, and openness with one characterized by political maneuvering, economic clout, and secrecy. What do you have to say about that? Well, well, um, it seems to me that there's a lot of political maneuvering in the commands to the agencies uh, that NRDC likes. I'd also point out that um, it's not just politicians, elected politicians, that have uh, uh, self-interest. Uh, it's also bureaucrats as well. Um, I think NRDC is trying to make out um, Reigns as being a uh, a conservative ploy. Maybe that's fair, but that's not a fair characterization of the statute that I have in mind. After all, the idea came from a prominent New Dealer. And there's a recent Rasmussen public opinion poll that shows the public by a margin of two to one, two voters to one, think EPA should not have the unilateral power to impose regulations on the public. So this is a uh, kind of a proposal I'm, I'm calling for has really very broad support among the public. Um, and so I just think NRDC is plain wrong. And I'd also point out that it has a certain self-interest here. Under the current regime where Congress commands, NRDC can go to court, get a court order, and then, um, you know, for the agency to regulate, and then uh, um, lobby the agency, and then seek judicial review of the agency. NRDC is the hero. They're the hero. They're the ones who's really driving the thing. Well, if the whole thing is going to have to come back for a vote in Congress, then all of a sudden they're upstaged. They're not going to have the same fundraising pizzazz. So if we're talking about self-interest, we've got to talk about NRDC's self-interest. I'm reminded <laughs> of, of um, the, 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 the head of, of General Motors, who back in the 40s famously said, though we probably didn't, didn't really say it, is what's good for General Motors is good for the country. Well, <laughs> what's good for... NRDC is not necessarily good for the environment or our country. Right. Um, barring other question, let me ask one, and this may be where we conclude. Do we have anybody else on the line, Nate? Uh, not currently. Okay. Um, so your last chance to call in with a question for David. Um, David, given – so I think the main, maybe the cl clearest difference between the Senate – RAINS Act, Senate version of the RAINS Act, and the Regulatory Responsibility Act, as you envision it, is that the Senate version at least can be interpreted as affecting only regulatory actions, where yours would also, Congress would have to vote on deregulatory actions. Given Democrats' concerns with the President's planned activities or planned um, deregulatory actions, do you think this would be enough to get bipartisan support for your proposal, in contrast to the House version of the RAINS Act, which I think you said passed with only Republican support. No, I think there were a, I think there were a couple of Republicans, uh, Democrats, 
who okay. voted for the House version. But at this point, there are no Democrats in the Senate that I know of that are are, are willing to support Reins. Um, I mean, the whole idea that um, you could, the bill in the name of responsibility could only apply to um, new regulations that impose new requirements on industry but not apply to deregulations is bizarre. I mean, if Congress is supposed to be responsible for lawmaking, it ought to be laws that impose more restrictions or laws that decrease restrictions. So I think it's absurd, uh, this um, this business of, and, you know, and, that's, and that's how the House presents its bill, is we're for something that will impose a requirement of voting in Congress if it's going to impose costs of more than $100 million. Nothing about the opposite. I think that's just absolutely ridiculous and irresponsible. And uh, and I think if we made it two-way, I think it would help um, to broaden the support for the for the concept. I mean, I think there are other changes that are needed. I think to have a responsible bill. And by the way, uh, Susan uh, mentioned earlier on that I have a number of ideas about how to formulate the bill. And if you go to my the website for my book, dc-confidential.org, dc-confidential.org, you will see there under how to get an honest deal um, a summary of the um, Regulatory Responsibility Act. And, and there's a, a kind of a provision-by-provision provision analysis of what we need to do to come up with a bill that I think has a better chance of getting broad support. Well, thanks, David. Um, Nate, is it? Do you think we should end on that positive note? I'd like to thank you both for joining us. I'd also like to offer either or both of you an opportunity for some concluding remarks. Well, I'd, I'd say a little bit more. I'd say that um, there are a number of things that the Trump administration has done that I think are helpful. Has made some excellent appointments. Uh, they um, President Trump has has rolled back some of the unilateral lawmaking that President Obama did, um, and, and so on. But any of these changes uh, um, are are, t- are temporary. I mean, another president could roll the, the could make an, another U-turn and return to exactly where we are. We need to change not just we need to uh, to change the system so that regardless of who's in the White House. We have a regulatory apparatus that is responsible to the legislators who in turn would be accountable to the voters for the kind of regulations we have. And I, David, I suppose that means educating both the American public as well as the members of Congress. Well, I think if, 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 if members of Congress are voting on not just aspirational goals or commands to agencies to achieve aspirational goals, but they're voting on regulations, then the voters will learn the ways in which achieving their regulatory protections they want have consequences, have costs. So voters would begin to be educated about the trade-offs between regulatory protection that they want and the cost of achieving it. And only when we begin to get some basic sense of that can voters have a balanced approach to what type of regulations we want. That doesn't mean the voters are going to read the statutes or read the regulations, but you don't have to read the statutes or the regulations to 
understand that there are trade-offs. And, and, and the current system is designed to, to protect uh, the, the, the legislators from the responsibility for the trade-offs. Okay, very good. Uh, Susan, anything else? Um, no, other than that I do think this is a very fruitful area for focus, which is greater congressional accountability and responsibility for the regulations that emanate from their legislation. Other than that, I would love to wish everybody a happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> well, and uh, we'd like to thank you both uh, for the benefit of your uh, valuable time and expertise today. We uh, welcome listener feedback by email at info at org. Thank you all for joining us. We are adjourned. Thank you for listening to Necessary and Proper. If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell a friend. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play. To learn more about the Article 1 initiative, please visit fedsoc.org slash article I. That's F-E-D-S-O-C dot org slash article I. This has been a FedSoc audio production. 